This morning, uh, I want to take some time, and I do this usually each, each kind of first or second Sunday of the year to kind of dial us back in again on who we are. And so this morning, uh, if you have your Bibles, I would like you to, to turn to Acts chapter 11, uh, and we're going to look at, at uh, verses 19 through 30 this morning. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at the foundational passage of our church, why we call ourselves Antioch Church. Some people are like, what is Antioch? Isn't that like a city up in Northern California or in Georgia somewhere or some other part? Or No, actually, it was a city in, in the Bible long time, in the Middle East, long time before it was named anything else. And the reason that we are patterned after that is what we're going to look at in this passage today. But what I want us to do, and this is really important, I need you to kind of shift gears with me this morning. One of the things that we do when we hear a message, is, is, and it's good, is that we take it and we listen for God to bring conviction to our life, and then we go out and we make changes in our life. That's good, and we do that a lot almost every Sunday. But what I want you to do this morning is I want you to shift gears because I want you to dream. I want you to dream not about just about our church collectively, but I want you to dream about your life. And this is really important distinction this morning. We use the term church a lot, and usually the default when we say church, is, it's one of a few things. First of all, church is what I do on Sunday. Church is the building. Church is the leadership or the pastor. But none of those actually are accurate for what the church is. The church is people. Say that. The church is people. The reason I want you to say that is because most of us go, yeah, 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 yeah. But no, the no, the church is people. So when we refer to the church today, we're not talking about collectively what we do on a Sunday morning. We're talking about who we are as individuals, as followers of Jesus. We're the church. Whether we're gathered here on a Sunday morning or we're scattered into our lives, we are the church. And so what does God want our lives to look like as people who belong to Antioch Church? So what does it look, to, look like to be an Antioch person? If we are marked by the church that we've become a part of, what does that look like? Not what we do on Sunday morning, but what we do in our lives, how we actually live our lives. And that's why I want us to look at this, this passage this morning. So let me read verse 19 to verse 30. This should be relatively familiar if you've been in our church for any amount of time. But this is, this is in Acts chapter 11, uh, verse 19 to 30. Before we, we read it, just the context. So Jesus has died, has risen from the dead. He has ascended back to the Father. He has sent his Holy Spirit into the lives of people. The church overall has been birthed, and now people are coming to know Jesus. People are being transformed and healed. All these great things are happening, except there's a group of people that don't like what's happening because it's a threaten, it threatens their power and their authority. So Jew, the Jewish people overall are resisting what's happening because what Jesus has done, so now there's this thing called persecution that enters the equation for the early church. So we pick this up in verse 19. It says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a man, good of, uh, a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. 
Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place during the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Now, what we're going to do is I want to walk through this because there's so many characteristics of this group of people 2,000 years ago that translate through history and culture for you and I to live today. We are not trying to replicate the church of Antioch 2,000 years ago. We are trying to simply reflect the power of God that they experienced through Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit into our modern day context to live the way Jesus wants us to live. Because although culture is different, Jesus is the same. And he wants us to live a certain way. And so there's six things I was, just want to go through in terms of what this looks like. Again, we are dreaming. Okay, so the first thing that's true of Antioch people is that they carry the gospel wherever they go. Now, I already lost some of you because you're like, oh, the gospel? That's for preachers. That's for evangelists. That's for people who go and do things to tell people about Jesus. That's not me. What is the gospel? Well, look what has happening here in verse 19. It says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. So we'll get to that expansion. But they're speaking the word. What are they speaking? Here's, here's what the gospel is. Because you think, oh, the gospel. Jesus' death, his resurrection, he ascended back to the Father. Yeah, that's all the nuts and bolts of the gospel. But here's the gospel unfolding in your life. It's what Jesus has done through his death and his resurrection in your life that has transformed your soul forever. It's your story. The gospel's unfolding every day. So what is the gospel? You, Antioch people share the gospel. You share your journey and your story with other people around you because of the things that God is doing in your life. That's the gospel unfolding. Now, here's what's crazy. They were doing that in Antioch because they were running for their lives. They so were committed to Jesus when death started into the equation, because if you knew Jesus, you could die. They ran because they would rather live and follow Jesus than die. So they ran. But as they're running, what are they doing when they bump into people? Can you imagine you come into a, a, a strange city like Antioch? They, they weren't from Antioch. They get there and people are like, what are you doing here? Like, well, you know, we're running for our lives. Why are you running for your lives? What's so important about your life that you're running for your life? And then what happens is they share their testimony. That's what's happening. That's something that you and I can do every single day. We can actually share the gospel. And this is what I want you to understand. Something sometimes happens to us that keeps us from sharing the gospel. We stop feeling. We become callous. We think it's somebody else's responsibility. And the thing that's missing in all of this is passion. I want you just for a moment, just imagine your life if this was your life, that you were so passionate about Jesus is done, that remember, they did this. They're running for their lives, but they can't keep their mouth shut. They're so passionate about Jesus is done, they can't be quiet. What if you got up in the morning and you were so passionate about what Jesus has done in your life and what he's doing that you can't be quiet? That you can't contain. Why? Because you know what God has done in your life and because now when you see people around you, you know he wants to do the same thing in their life and something in you has such passion and love for them that you can't stop yourself from demonstrating and sharing who Jesus is in your life. And I'm not talking about the four spiritual laws or doing evangelism. I'm talking about sharing your life with people as you share your story, which is what? The gospel of what Jesus is doing. Can you imagine if you didn't have to work up energy and nervousness and all that to go and talk to somebody, but you were so passionate you couldn't shut up? Wouldn't that be awesome? 
You know what we need? We need God to break our heart. God needs to break our hearts. I shared this about a year ago, but I'll share it again in just real transparency. We've been here for five years now. The first four years of pastoring in Simi Valley, every time I drove on the 118 coming into Simi Valley over Santa Susana Pass, and I looked at our city, this is what I would say. God, break my heart for Simi Valley. I think, well, you're a pastor. Your heart should break. No. I like Simi. I enjoy Simi. Some places, things about Simi I tolerate, but I wouldn't use love to describe it at that point. But I thought, God, if I'm going to pastor effectively in the city, I've got to love the city that I am, but I don't feel anything. It's like, God, break my heart. So a year ago, sitting in a council meeting, in which much of our council meetings do end this way, we end up praying, and we were praying for, we'll pray for, for the world, we're praying for our city, praying for things going on in the church, but all of us are on, we're on our knees, and we're praying, and I can't even remember who was praying, but we were praying about our city, and I can't remember exact context, but I don't cry easily. And all of a sudden, I start weeping. And I'll tell you, in my mind, I'm like, I'm like what is wrong with me? And seriously, there was a sense of like embarrassment. And I was so glad that all of the council, we were like all buried in our seats and like, you know, we we're kneeling. And so I'm like looking around like, no one's looking at all, you know, just wiping the tears, trying to like cover myself because I'm like, just get it together. What's wrong with you? But I really started feeling something about our city that I never felt. So I, I composed myself and then I prayed and then we ended the meeting and, and either the council was really gracious or they had no idea that I had just been crying. So I get out of the council meeting, I get in my car, I'm like, whew, that was close, I covered myself there. I don't want to cry in front of the church council. And then I get in my car, drive out of the parking lot, and I get up to the corner here of Tapo Street in L.A., and I turn left as I'm heading home. And it hits me even harder this time. I just start crying. I'm bawling in my car. As I'm watching people, it's like 10 o'clock at night, they're walking down the street, or they're on their bike, or they're driving by in a car, and every person that goes by, I just start crying again. And this is what hit me. I felt this weight... And this is what I kept saying. I said, Jesus, do they even know how much you love them? Do they even know what you've done for them? And I'm just crying all the way home. And I just couldn't. I got home and Kim's looking at me like, what's wrong with you? For four years, I asked God to break my heart. And finally, he broke my heart for this city. I love Simi Valley. And I can say that with confidence. But you know what? The other thing that God did in the process is just really cool is that you know what's part of Simi Valley? Antioch Church. And I love you guys so much. I love this church. I love the stories that I hear. I, I love even the challenges that many of you face and what God's doing. I love pastoring this church. And I'll be honest, there are times in the past I've looked at the church and pastor, and I'm like, love cannot be the word you used to describe this. Every pastor would say that, but I'll tell you, God has brought, I, I love, like, I'll tell you this morning, I had a pretty full week. I was away for some education stuff, and I came back, and I was so excited. People walking in the door, I was so excited to see you guys this morning. And that's not worked up, and that's because God has given me a heart for our church and for our city and for people. Maybe you're like me. Maybe you just need God to make you cry, to make you weep over the city. That when something happens in our city, is isn't something that happened to somebody else. It's something that happened to us. And we feel that. So we carry the gospel. Why? Because we have passion for people around us. Second thing. Antioch people love, care for, and reach out to people that are different than them. Verse 20 says, But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who were coming to Antioch, spoke to Hellenists. Also, they were preaching Jesus. Remember it says they were only sharing 
the gospel with, to, with the Jews. And now suddenly you get to Antioch, and now it starts to expand. Now, who are Hellenists? So Hellenists are, are culturally Greek people, but by birth are Jewish. So what happened is, if you go back in Israel's history, you go back to Babylon, you have what, this exile where people are moved out of Jerusalem and out of Israel. Now they've been exiled. Now they're living in this foreign land. And then as you read through the Old Testament, you see that some of them migrate back to Jerusalem, and they reestablish themselves. But some of them did not migrate back. And you know what happened is over time, even, even over generations, they become culturated by the culture around them. And so even though they're born Jewish, they're not, they, don't, they don't follow Judaism. So they're really pagans, just with Jewish birth. And so they are, by culture, they're Greek now. And so now, because really Jews would see them as non-Jews, for the first time the Jews are saying, this gospel is for more than just the Jews. And now they're reaching people that are different than them, and as you can see from the context, not only different culturally, but they're going to be different ethnically, different languages. This is where Antioch starts to spread. So it's now this collection of people that don't necessarily all act the same, look the same, speak the same language, have the same complexion. Now it's becoming diverse. Now for some Jews, it's like, whoa. But this is a huge shift in where the gospel is going. And this is important for you and I to understand because we're supposed to love and care for people that are different than us. And most of us would nod our heads until we're confronted with a person who's different than us. And we go, oh, oh, wait a second. Because I know I've seen in my life, most of us would say, well, I'm not prejudiced until you run into the person that you are prejudiced against. And it could be based not only on ethnicity, it could be based on gender. It could be based on age. It could be based on economics. But you are confronted with that and you're like, oh, I didn't know that was there. But, but let's just, I want you to just imagine for a moment, just for a moment, what would your life be like if you walked into a room filled with people that were completely different with you and you were excited about it? When you were the minority and you celebrated that? This side is excited. This side's like, ah, don't go that far, Pastor John. Wouldn't that be awesome? Let me tell you, there's a, let me tell you this is a room of people I would, I would walk into that I would be excited about. A room full of people who are Japanese, Salvadorian, Mexican, Greek, Spanish, Argentinian, Italian, Filipino, European, male, female, married, single, young, old. That's a group of people I get excited about. You know why? Because that's a group of people I walk into every week. It's called my community group. That is the ethnic makeup of, of Anthony and Angel Nagatsuka's community group that meets in our house. I love, sometimes I sit there and I look at Kim and I say, isn't this the coolest thing that we are the minority in our community group? Seriously. Because why is that so important? Because the diversity of ethnicity and age and gender creates this amazing mix of opinions and understandings about what God is doing. I'll be honest, if I'm going to sit in a room with a bunch of white guys talking about Jesus, it gets boring in a hurry because we all have the same opinion. But if I'm in a diverse room and see how the gospel's penetrating people from different backgrounds and cultures and different languages. And by the way, the food in our community group is amazing. <laughs> Onet says yes, because she's a big reason for that. I love that. What if that was you? Maybe you need a little bit of what, maybe you need to come to our community group. Because I've seen what happens sometimes. You're like, ah, I'm really excited. And then you walk into a room and there's that one ethnicity that you had a run-in with years ago. And you've been prejudiced and didn't know it until you were confronted with it. The church at Antioch was the explosion of the gospel now penetrating beyond Jew to Gentile to all nations. And that's what God wants for us, that kind of thing in our lives. Third thing, and that is that Antioch people experience the power and presence of God. 
verse 23, it says, when he came, so remember, so what happened is, something's happening at Antioch. This is what's crazy. The main mother church in Jerusalem gets word, something's happening at Antioch. So what do they do? They send Barnabas, and it's kind of a good thing, but it's a little mixed, because this is partly why they're saying Barnabas. Barnabas, go check out what's going on, because we don't know about this. We hear Hellenists are getting saved. People who are not Jews are getting saved. And we're not sure about this, so can you go check it out? That's why it was important, because they sent a guy full of the Holy Spirit and faith. So Barnabas walks in. This is what happens. It says, but when, uh, he says, but when he came, he saw the grace of God. He was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. This is important to understand. What did, what did Barnabas experience? We don't get, like, detailed explanation other than we know the gospel spreading to people who were different ethnicities. But, but what is the grace of God? Now, our default is, we know what the grace of God is. The grace of God is that God chooses to love me even though I don't deserve it. God chooses to forgive me for my sin even though I don't deserve it. That's grace. Yeah, that's grace. But you know what grace of God is? The word grace, the root word for grace is the word gift. In fact, when you hear that gifts of the Spirit, it's the word charisma, which is the word gift, which is the same word as grace, graces. So we can take from this passage that not only was Antioch, or not only was, was Barnabas seeing people get saved of different ethnicity, he's walking in, and just like you would in any, any explosion or church in the book of Acts, you know what you'd walk in and see, or you'd even come to that town? You'd see miracles, you'd see demons being cast out, you'd see dead people getting raised, you'd see all the stuff that God's power, that's God's grace. So he's walking in, and he's saying, okay, this, and what he's saying is, they're asking him, Barnabas, we need you to tell us, is this God or not? And so when Barnabas gets there, you know what he says? Oh yeah, this is God. This is God. I'm, we're seeing God's grace present. And that's why it's so important that Antioch people, 2,000 years later, still experience the power of God. And somehow we forget that. Our faith becomes so cerebral that we want to explain everything away of God's power so that we can understand it. There will always be an element of God, a big element of God, that you will never fully understand. You will just experience. It's God's power. And that's one of the things that's a challenge. But you know what's beautiful about our church in this last year, we have seen more people healed than in the, the, the previous four years that I've been here. We have verifiable people who've gone to the doctor and they had a disease and now they no longer have the disease. That's God. That's what they were experiencing 2,000 years ago. That didn't end anywhere in the last 2,000 years. That's still happening today, but it doesn't seem to happen. Why? Because God's not able to heal people in, in our Western culture? No, it's because sometimes we just don't believe that God does that anymore. And we need to be woken up to the reality that he does. I'm going to play a really short clip from a guy named John Wimber. Some of you know him. He is the founder of Vineyard, who's passed away. He's with Jesus now. And, and as I play this clip, this is kind of his experience. When he got saved, his testimony is amazing. He had no concept for Jesus in church. And when he started reading through the Bible, his understanding was, well, when I read the book of Acts, we're supposed to do the stuff that Jesus did. And then the church that he got into and the understanding he had is they weren't doing that, and he couldn't figure out why. And this is his little dialogue, this video. Let's go, go ahead and take a look at this together. I spent several weeks reading the New Testament and talking with these people, and I thought, this is great. You know, I'm going to join up. I want to do this stuff. And so I remember the frustration of attending church the first few times. You know what I thought they did at church? Now, this is how stupid I was. I thought you, that people gathered at the church, had a good time together, sort of divvied up the land, and then everybody went out and healed a few and cast out a few demons and won a few people to Christ before lunch. And so the first few times I went to church, I went prepared with the idea that we're going to, you know, ha, I'm going to take Anaheim. I want to go to Anaheim, you know, the deepest, darkest pagan Anaheim over there by Disneyland. That's where I want to go because that's where I was raised. And when they didn't do it, I was disappointed. 
And I remember one day asking a guy about it. I said, well, when do we go out and do it? He said, what? I said, when do we go out and do it? He says, oh, you don't have to do it. You just have to believe it was done once. Now, that's pathetic. Isn't it? I found out over the next year or two that we cried about it. We sang about it. We preached about it. We prayed over it. We gave to it, but we never did it. We never got to go do the things that Jesus did. And I grew disillusioned in the process. Now, you know, when I worked for the devil, he let me do his stuff. <laughs> Didn't he let you do his stuff? He let me do his stuff. But when I came to work for Jesus, they didn't want to let me do his stuff. And I, to tell you the truth, I joined up to do the stuff. Did you? You see, it's doing the stuff that's going to change the world. Now, before I move on to the next point, there's a few more points left. I wanted to clarify, because I know for some people, you're either really excited I played that clip, and some of you are like, oh, no. Because this is the reality of the church, this church, and I know, I know people well, is that we come from diverse backgrounds in terms of our own understanding of the way God works. And this, this term Pentecostalism has gotten a bad name because we always, we always connect that with the extreme abuses in Pentecostalism. So what we do, instead of trying to figure out what God's doing, we just throw the baby out with the bathwater. So we live over in this extreme of God doesn't work in power anymore because I don't understand it. Or we go to the craziness of human response to God's power and we throw both of them out because we don't know what to do. We lose the power of God. And I want you to understand, when you read through the Bible, you will understand to be Christian is to be Pentecostal. Now, I hate to use that term because you're like, oh, they're Pentecostal. Now, listen, Jesus never stopped doing miracles throughout the centuries. And we need to understand that one of the reasons the church in the West, and that means the church in the United States, is struggling is because we've become so smart that we've explained God's power away. But that doesn't mean that you and I throw our brains out and think, okay, well, anything goes, because that's not the answer either. You know what we have to do? We have to do the hard work of discernment, which means asking the question that Barnabas had to ask, is this God? So when something crazy happens that you don't understand, don't just throw it out. Ask the question, God, are you in this? Is this you? How can, I, how can I know if this is you? How can I verify this is something that you would do? And ask in honesty instead of just writing it off. And here's what I hope for this year. We've seen a lot of people get healed in our church this year. You know what I want to see? I want to see a lot of people in our community get healed this year. I want to see us praying for our neighbors or our coworkers or our family members or our people that we go to school with. Because I know some of us are freaked out, but what if you walked into work one day and someone came in and they were, they were sick as can be, but they had to be at work because they had a deadline. And instead of saying, oh, I really feel bad for you, stay away from me because I don't want to get sick. What if you walked to them and said, hey, you know, I don't want to make you uncomfortable, but, but could I just lay my hand on your shoulder and pray for you? Because I believe that God actually could heal you. Like some are like, oh, I don't know about that. You know what? That's the kind of thing they were doing all the time in in Antioch 2,000 years ago. What would that mean to our city? What would that mean to your coworker who doesn't know Jesus, who comes in sick as can be and leaves energized? Why? Because God touched them. That can happen. So you and I have to understand that's the way God works. Fourth thing, Antioch people, we're going to go a little bit long today. I apologize, but, but I'll try to keep it as tight as we can. Fourth thing, Antioch people reflect the character and heart of Jesus. So remember verse 26, it says in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. 
Now, there's, it's, there's a, understand that it could have been a derogatory term or it could have been a positive term. Either way, this is what's true, is that their lives were so reflective of who Jesus is that people called them little Jesuses. That's what they were doing. They were attaching them to, you're like that Christ. You're like Jesus Christ. So they, that's kind of the name. That's kind of the reputation that they got. And so because of that, they were identified. They so identified the character in the heart of Jesus. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. Ask yourself this question. When was the last time somebody asked you if you were a Christian in a positive way? Now, here's the thing that we have to be careful of. Like, well, I have people ask me I'm a Christian all the time because I have a bumper sticker and I carry my Bible everywhere and I say praise God all the time. No, I'm not talking about that. Do you reflect the character and heart of Jesus in such a way that people are asking, why are you different than everybody else? You deal with problems, you go through struggles, but you're different than everybody else that I know around me. What's, what's, are you a Christian? You know, it's funny, one of the way, one of the places that this question gets asked all the time is in a laundromat when you're part of Laundry Love. Happens all the time. Those of you who've done Laundry Love, you know, but it doesn't necessarily come in the form of, are you a Christian? You know what it comes in the form of? Are you part of a church? And that question is asked with two types of kind of tone. The first one is, are you part of a church? Which is, I know what you're doing. You're going to pay for my laundry because you want to tell me about Jesus and get me to come to your church. Those in laundry, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. And then the way that I know I combat that, I'm like, yeah, you know, we're a part of the church, but I'll tell you one thing for sure. We're not going to force you and invite you to church, but I'll tell you one thing for sure. And this money that we're giving right now doesn't come from the church. It actually comes from the individual members of this community group that take money out of their own pocket to invest in caring for you and your laundry. And usually at that time, I'm like, oh, because usually they're always, their idea of church is the church is always on the take. The church is always manipulating me. But then there's other people that literally, they'll watch what's going on and they'll go, are you, are you guys part of a church? And will reluctantly say, well, yeah, but this is our community group. And they're like, well, if you're part of church, I want to go to that church. I want to go to a church that would actually show up in a laundromat and pay for people's laundry out of their own pocket. I've had that conversation a number of times. Why is that? Because... When you're, I'm not, no, I use the lens of a laundromat, but it's not always, obviously, it's whatever context. But when somebody walks in, they, they see the character and the heart of Jesus in somebody who shows up to a bunch of strangers and hangs out for an hour and a half to two hours, pays for their laundry, and builds relationship with them. See, think about that in our lives. Imagine what your life would be like if literally people were coming up to you in a positive way and they're saying, you're a Christian, aren't you? I can tell by the way you live your life. I can tell by the way you make decisions. I can tell by the words that you use. I can tell by the way you love people. You're a Christian. Wouldn't it be great to be called a Christian and not feel bad? Because we feel bad a lot of times. Yeah, I'm one of those, those judgmental, hypocritical, horrible people that don't really care and love for anybody. That's the reputation we have. But what if, instead of worrying about the public discourse for Christianity right now, which is very negative, because all you hear is about the bad stuff, what is individuals who are the church lived out Jesus and shaped and changed the perception of people from the ground up. Because then the Christians that get in the limelight and don't represent Jesus very well would be written off as, oh, you must not be a Christian because I know a Christian and they're not like that. It could change the world around us. Fifth thing, Antioch people live generous lives. This is one of the things I'm so proud of our church. We are a very generous church, particularly for our size. We are a very generous church. But listen what happens. It says, The disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. So there's a famine. And so they decided to say, listen, we're going to give. Remember, these are people who have fled for their lives from Jerusalem to Antioch. And now people are getting saved. These are not wealthy people. These are common people. Some of them are in poverty. But they're saying, listen, 
our brothers and sisters are suffering, they need help, so we need to send them support. That's generosity. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. Okay, this is really important. What if, just imagine what your life would be like. If you gave, I'm not just talking about giving to the church, but gave in all areas of your life, not according to what you could afford, but according to what the need is. Just think about that for a moment. Because how many times when you and I are confronted with a need, the first thing that comes into our mind is, can I afford this? Wrong question. Because I know me, I'll just be honest with myself, if that question pops in my mind, I will find a way not to afford it. How many know what I'm talking about? Oh, I got this bill, and I got that, and, I, and the need is higher than I give, so I might as well not give anything. And then you walk away thinking, I was a good steward of my money. No! You asked the wrong question. The question is not, what can I afford? The question is, what, what do you need? And if I don't have it, I'll try to find a way to meet that need. See, this is one of the things that you and I miss about giving and generosity. We talk about tithing. Tithing is embedded. It is an Old Testament, but it's, throughout the, but it's embedded as an Old Testament principle. It's carried over to the New Testament. But, but tithing is never meant to give 10%. That's the starting point. Tithing is meant to start a life of generosity, and you start with 10%. And the reason we know that is because when you get into the New Testament, you know one of the things they didn't talk a lot about in the early church? Tithing. Because you know what they did? This is going to be a new slash to some people. In the early church, they didn't tithe. They gave more. You can read throughout it. You can read, you get in the early chapters. What did they do? Some of them had land, and then those who had, had resource, they would go and sell their land, and then they'd come and lay all of the money at the apostles' feet and say, hey, distribute it to who has need. They didn't give 10%. They gave everything they had. They gave their lives. And that's what we talk about tithing, but tithing is the starting point that leads to a life of generosity. So what if you and I gave according to the need and not according to what we could afford? What might our lives look like? What might the world look like? I want you to watch a short video. You might have heard about this, about a homeless man who gave his last $20 to help a woman who'd ran out of gas. Take a look at this. Katie McClure was on her way to a friend's house when something that most women fear quickly became her reality. It was 12 o'clock at night, and for the first time in Katie's life, she ran out of gas while driving on one of Philadelphia's freeways. Luckily for Katie, she ran out of gas in the right place. Katie had never been in a situation like this one before. Katie said, my heart was beating out of my chest. I pulled over as far as I could, and I got out of the car to head to the nearest gas station. When she got to the gas station, Katie saw someone that she recognized. Johnny Bobbitt Jr. was at his usual spot in front of the gas station when Katie approached. Johnny's a homeless veteran that Katie's seen from time to time. Katie never thought that the guy who hung out at the gas station would one day become her hero. Johnny had seen Katie pull over and he knew something was wrong. Once he had found out that she'd ran out of gas, he told Katie to get back in her car and lock the doors. Katie did as he said and walked back to her car. After a few minutes, Katie saw Johnny making his way to her car, but this time he had something in his hand. Katie realized that it was a gas can that he was carrying. Johnny had committed the ultimate act of kindness. Not only did Johnny make sure that Katie got home safely, he did something that you wouldn't believe. For someone who relies on what little money he has to get by, Johnny spent his last $20 on gas for Katie. Katie couldn't believe what Johnny had done for her, and she wanted to repay him. Katie and her boyfriend have gone back to the road where Johnny lives several times. They've not only returned with words of gratitude, they paid Johnny back for the gas and have given him food, warm clothes, and even a gift card. But Katie just had to do something more. 
Not only was Johnny a hero to Katie, he was a hero to the United States as well. Johnny served as an ammunition technician in the U.S. Marine Corps who had dreams of being a flight nurse. Unfortunately, sometimes our dreams just don't play out the right way. Johnny had been homeless in Philadelphia for about a year and a half after struggling with drug addiction and money problems. Despite his past, Katie wanted to do something to really help out Johnny. It was then that a GoFundMe was started in Johnny's name. In less than two weeks, over $350,000 was raised for Johnny. Katie and Mark planned to manage the funds in order to help Johnny get an apartment, a phone, a car, and food. This just goes to show how one random act of kindness can go a long way. is that amazing? I checked that GoFundMe account this morning. It's over $400,000. He's no longer homeless. He bought a house. He's helping out other people now with the, with the money that he received because he's a generous person. He's generous when he has $20, and he was generous when he had $400,000. Why? Because he gave according to what the need was. Now, hear me on this. I'm wanting us to dream. So, like, don't feel guilty right now. Feel like, what if my life could be like that? What if I could be a generous person, regardless of my bank account, that anytime I see a need, I'm already thinking, how can I meet that need? As opposed to, oh, I just, I can't afford it. That's generosity. Last thing, and then we'll close. I know we're running a little bit late here. The last thing that's true of Antioch people is that they send and support missionaries around the world. And this is really important. If you continue through the book of Acts, you would see in Acts 13, Acts 15, Acts 18, Antioch comes in, into play again because Antioch is the church that Paul, the Apostle Paul, goes in and out of on his missionary journeys to go and reach the world. And so they're ascending church. They're supporting and they're sending and they're praying for these missionaries that are going out from them. And so and what's crazy is that you and I, if we were to trace back how we came to know Jesus through the centuries, you could be traced back could be good guess that we're here today because of this church. Because most of us in this room today are not Jewish by birth. Some of us are, but most, most of us are not. We would have never found our way into the gospel until the gospel hit the city of Antioch and this church exploded to reach the nations. Isn't that amazing? But that's what God wants us to be today. And here's, here's the thing I want you just to picture for a moment. This is what I want you to imagine. Now, for some, you don't even have to imagine this. This is your life. But I want you to imagine this. What if you were not afraid to give and to go anywhere to reach people for Jesus? You weren't afraid not only where you're going, you weren't afraid of what you would have to give up. You weren't afraid of losing your job or your house or your livelihood or your lifestyle, but you were so consumed with people who needed to know Jesus, you were willing to give everything and go after that. For some of you, there may be certain places in the world that you'd say, oh, I'll go serve Jesus in Tahiti. But don't ask me to go to Haiti. We have, why? Because Haiti's too hard. It's hot there. Didn't you know that? It's kind of humid there, and they kind of are dealing with poverty, and the government's kind of unstable, and it's not, you know, I've seen pictures. People have gone there. I don't know if I want to go to Haiti. What if that was all gone? Now, I'm using Haiti because that's our context for a lot of what we do, but, but it, it could be other places around the world. But what if, because I've had dialogues with people in our church. There are people in our church who have not gone to Haiti yet, and if they're honest, it's because they're scared to death. I can't go. I can't take off work. can't leave school. can't afford it. I can't handle the heat. I can't do construction. I don't do well with kids. All, I've heard all of these excuses. And I've also seen people with all of those excuses go and have their lives completely transformed. Why? Because when you... Put yourself out there. You start to experience God's power. You got to see that God will show up. But what if our lives were like that? 
You know, it's funny. Remember Greg Barsha, Connect 2? He's spoken here. We know Greg. I love Greg. Greg says some things that are really controversial, but they're actually very biblical. He's made this statement. He said, safety and what we call stewardship are not biblical principles. You and I are not supposed to pray for safety. Why? Because we just trust that God knows what he's going to do. If I live or die, that's not my control. That's God. Stewardship, which usually means, stewardship means I can only give so much because I'm a good steward. You give it all. So when Greg said that, I'm like, whoa, wait a second. I always pray for protection. We pray for what? Journeys, mercies. And we only know it's God's will if everything goes just right. But if it doesn't go just right, then it can't possibly be God's will. Read the book of Acts. Newsflash. Bad stuff happened to good people, but God still was victorious in their lives and the lives of people around them. But just imagine what your life would be like if there was no limitation. And that you're willing to go. And we close with this story. And you've heard this before, but I got to tell it because she's one of my heroes. And uh, I can brag on her, and I'll ask for forgiveness after telling her story. But she's, she's not in this city. She's up in Newburgh. Her name's Debbie, one of my friends. And Debbie uh, was the kind of person that was, she had heard about all the things about going on this missions trip and serving locally here. And she's like, I got nothing. I don't want to do anything to do with that. I'm, I'm an introvert. I don't talk to people. I don't want to go. Other people can do that. I'll write a check any day. They go do it, but I'm not going to do it myself. So somebody twisted her arm. I don't know who it was, but I have to thank them. And they convinced her. Our church was sending teams down to the Dream Center at that time from Oregon down to L.A. to serve for a week with the Dream Center. Somebody convinced her that it would be a good idea for her to go, and she said, yes. I couldn't believe it. I'm like, Debbie's going on this trip? So she goes on this trip, and if you've been, obviously, with Skid Row, we partnered with Dream Center, but there's a whole week-long thing you can do, and you get involved in all the different ministries and helping with the homeless and all kind of stuff that's going on. And then we, we, everyone came back and they shared testimonies on a Sunday and they all shared these amazing testimonies of how they cared for the poor and how they prayed for people and how they were, you know, all these different things. And then Debbie's up there and they give her the mic. I'm like, oh, I'm really interested to hear what Debbie has to say. And this is what she said. She goes, I, I talked to a stranger. And everyone's like, like, and the stranger got saved and they got healed. And she said, I, I talked to somebody I don't know. And we're, I'm serious. This is what she's saying. And we're like, uh, she goes, yeah, I, we were on Hollywood Boulevard and there was this person that was across the street. So I walked across the street and I like said hi to them and talked to them for about three minutes. That was her testimony. That's it. And I remember thinking, okay, we got to get her off the stage for second service because that just, that's not good enough. And then God said, well, wait a second. This is a woman who wouldn't even talk to her neighbor. She's an introvert. She's scared to death. She's in LA talking to a stranger on Hollywood Boulevard. And I said, you're right, God. Long, long story short. She goes from experiencing the Dream Center to starting an adopt-a-block and adopting an apartment complex in our city with a group of people, and then two years later ends up in some remote villages in the middle of Uganda sharing her testimony of how God restored her husband or their marriage and ministering to people who she doesn't understand their language, and, and they're living in poverty. They're completely different than her. Talk about strangers, and she's fully alive. How did that happen? Because she said yes. She faced her fear and watched God transform her life. If we are going to be Antioch Church, then we are going to have to, it'll be out of control, the places that people will go and the things that God will do. But we have to come get over our fear. I'm going to ask you just to close your eyes as we conclude. In fact, if you would just stand. I'm going to pray over us as we, we head out. 
Jesus, I pray, first of all, you would not let one of us go from this place feeling a sense of somehow condemnation, that we're not, we're not cutting it or we're not doing good enough. That's not, that's not it. Because, Jesus, I know what, what you're describing, what we've just read through, is not a group of people who got together and thought it would be a good idea to live amazing lives. It's a group of people that were so transformed by your work in their lives through the power of your spirit that it changed everything about their lives. And Lord, that part of the story is not cultural. It's not just historic. It's current. It's today. It's what you're doing. It's what you've always done. So Jesus, I pray right now that you would come by your spirit and you would give us courage where we are afraid. That Lord, that you would give us boldness where we want to pull back. That you would give us courage to Lord, even believe that you might do something supernatural in our lives. In fact, just with your eyes closed, I want you to know that what is the answer to this? Because you may be walking away and go, okay, well, how is this going to work? How are we going to be Antioch people? Over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about somebody that will change everything. And you know who he is. His name's Jesus. And we're going to talk about the way Jesus is related to us and the way we relate to him. We're going to talk about some things that are really pivotal for our church. And that is understanding Jesus, that we are with Jesus, that we become like Jesus, and ultimately our lives are for Jesus. And when Jesus is the center and Jesus is at the top and Jesus is everything, then we start to look like Antioch Church. It's not something we manufacture. It's not something that we make. It's something that we surrender to and let God by his power do in us. So Jesus, we surrender ourselves to you. And as we go into our lives this week, I pray that by your spirit who lives in us, the same spirit that raised you from the dead is at work in each one of us, that you would rise up in us in such a way that we would step across the cubicle, step across the street, step across the world, give generously, do all these things that we know in our capacity can't do in our human abilities, but know by your power we can become the people you call us to be. And then what we imagine today will no longer be stuck in our imagination. It will be the reality of our lives because we've surrendered fully to you, Jesus. We ask these things in your name, Lord. Amen.